If you have a Bible, and I hope you do, let's turn it to Matthew 5. If you don't own a Bible, I'd encourage you to grab the one in the seats in front of you. I think you'll be helped to see that this church and this message is something that's really rooted in what the Bible is saying and teaching. Um, we're currently going through the Gospel of Matthew, and uh, we're in chapter 5 in what's known as the Sermon on the Mount. That's page 810 in the Black Bibles, where we'll pick up where we left off last week. We're in a series of six illustrations that Jesus gives after giving his thesis statement in verses 17 through 20 of chapter 5. And so our fifth and sixth illustration today and this next week in the passage that we'll be looking at, we're going to look at some controversial and difficult texts, uh, controversial in the sense that Christians have not known what to do with them. So there's all kinds of questions that they raise, all kinds of discussions about the use of, of violence, uh, guns. Anybody ever heard people having controversy about gun control? Does that sound, sound relevant? Um, or even military and war. Anybody ever heard friends debate or discuss whether or not this war here or there is right or just, ideas about just war theory. Pacifists use these words that uh, say that no, there should be no war. Christians should never be a police officer. Christians should never engage in military combat, etc. There's, there's a variety of issues that these texts have been used throughout uh, the history of the church. And so I, I think it'd be useful to start just briefly to say, uh, I don't think that some of these questions are really going to be answered by our text because I don't think that's what Jesus is talking about. But there are principles that we're going to get to that will, I think, be helpful for your individual conversations. And that if some of you here today, you're a pacifist or you're not a pacifist, you're more than happy to be a part of this church and a member of this church and agree to disagree with one another on some of these secondary, tertiary matters that Christians have debated. You'll notice when you study how Christians have read these passages of Scripture, they haven't all always agreed, even from the earliest days. Um, next week's passage, Love Your Enemies, though, is one of the most quoted passages in uh, the early church. And so this was a hallmark of what early Christians thought about themselves, was the love of enemies. And so I don't think that this is a good text to use if somebody's in abusive uh, marriage or relationship. I think we talked about that pretty clearly a couple weeks ago. So if you weren't here and you wonder what's our stance on, you know, should a woman stay in a marriage if she's being physically abused? Answer no. Like she should not at least stay getting beat because the Bible says turn the other cheek. Well, turn the other cheek. Let your husband just beat on you. That, that's not at all. This passage is, it should not be used to advocate turning the other cheek to be beaten in a home. Uh, this passage probably isn't the best passage to try and figure out whether or not the United States of America should be in a war or not. Uh, maybe principles, truths, ideas, concepts, and, and you can kind of think through that. And we can agree to disagree. Some of you might think, I think th this is a good idea for the good of the world and the kingdom of God and other things. And others of you will disagree. So just from the outset, I want you to know I'm not going to answer all those questions. I hopefully want to see what did Jesus say here? Why did he say it and how does that apply to us? That's kind of what we do every week. And hopefully that will be useful. So let's read the passage and then we'll un unpack it 
point by point. Starting in verse 38, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him take your cloak as well. And then if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you. And do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. So here's, here's, I think, the maybe systematic way to think about this passage. Jesus starts, as he does in all of these sections, these five, six illustrations that we're looking at, with an Old Testament quote. So I want to first look at the Old Testament law, and I want us to first consider how the Old Testament law limited evil. And that in the Old Testament laws, all of them, Jesus is not abolishing them or putting them away. He is saying that they were pointing somewhere, some of which are pointing, and they're, they're very good and helpful, but there's, there's, they're pointing further, and he's, he's going to take us to where the Old Testament law was pointing and not say, oh, don't, just don't worry about that anymore. That was a dumb law. Well, I want us to see the goodness of the Old Testament law first and see that it was limiting and restraining evil. Second, I want us to see how Jesus' New Testament law is taking where the Old Testament law was pointing us to, and it is actually calling us to not just restrain evil, but to reverse evil in our interactions with one another. And thirdly, I want us to see how the life of Jesus actually conquers evil. And we'll close with that. So that's kind of the big outline, is first Old Testament text, then Jesus' text, and then we'll see the good news of the gospel in its conquering over evil. First... The Old Testament law. So you start reading this passage and you said, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Jesus is quoting a passage that appears three different times in the Old Testament. You can look up the different passages, but the point is, is that three different times in the Old Testament, you see this different phrase it said in different variations. And I would imagine for many of you, whether or not you, or you could imagine other people that would say, that sounds barbaric, doesn't it? These old ancient laws. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, somebody gouges out your eye, well, then you gouge their eye out back. And that's a lot of times the way we hear that phrase. And I already taught on this a year ago, but to remind you, this phrase is not to say if somebody cuts off your hand that you must and therefore should cut off their hand. It means that the punishment should fit the crime. It's a principle for doing legal courtroom judiciary decisions for the elders and people of a community. So this isn't I get my hand chopped off. Ow, that really hurt. I get out my sword, and then now, hey, I get to chop your hand off. You don't get to make that decision as an individual. This is an Old Testament law for a community of people to say the punishment should fit the crime, and the punishment should never exceed the original act that was first done. So it is to limit further retaliation of greater violence. Because honestly, think about it. If somebody hits you, cuts your, your hand off, gouges out your eye, is the natural tendency of the human condition to say, yeah, all I want to do is just get even and gouge out their eye. It's like, no, I'm going to gouge out your eye, then your wife's eye, and then your kid's eye. I'm going to take you up a notch and then increase the amount of violence. So from the get-go, you need to realize that when we go back to the Old Testament law, we realize that the Old Testament was not about you personally carrying it out. It was the maximum penalty that could be given, and it was for a judicial group of elders or maybe think judge saying this is how punishments should fit the crime. And there should be a sense of when we 
understand these Old Testament laws in the context of the ancient Near Eastern world, you should see the very goodness of these laws, how, how they are accelerating Israel much further than its ancient counterparts. So a lot of times you read stuff in the Bible and you compare it to modern day things. This is unhelpful. Remember, you always want to read it back in its context. He is advancing the law of God in its day and making them stick out with righteousness surpassing all the other nations. So Jesus is quoting this passage. And if we remember what he said, look at verse 17 of Matthew 5. I have not come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And on this text in particular, I have heard several pastors, Bible teachers say, Jesus quotes the Old Testament and says, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. But we're going to do away with that now. I'm going to tell you something different. And I think that's bogus. Jesus says in 517, the thesis statement that I'm, I'm not abolishing the law. I am going to fulfill it. So what we need to understand is that the Old Testament not just in the specific law, but the whole Old Testament story. If you remember that message from several weeks ago, Jesus is referring to the law. It's just not specific laws. It's a whole grand narrative of what God is doing to take the story forward of about his involvement and bringing salvation to the world. So Jesus is not doing away with the spirit of the Old Testament laws in particular and the broader context of the Old Testament in general. And some people say that some of the laws are not just barbaric, and hopefully we've done some work with that. Like, no, 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 they're actually good laws to try and say punishment should fit crime, etc. But then, furthermore, we hear things like, well, the Old Testament is full of all kinds of violence. The spirit of the Old Testament does not seem to be limiting evil and violence. It seems to accelerate it. I mean, just read about all these different holy wars, and you'll start thinking, wow, this is terrible. The God commands complete genocide, annihilation of people, and these are the sort of things that people hear and say. And so, I'd like to suggest a few different thoughts about how Jesus is fulfilling the spirit of restraining evil and pointing toward a God who will conquer evil by thinking about this idea. I'm getting a lot of this, by the way, from a popular level book written by Joshua Butler called The Skeletons in God's Closet. So if you want to jot that down, I haven't actually read the whole book, but I've read the section that he wrote. And I think it's helpful about how Old Testament violence is sometimes a skeleton in God's closet. Because it's like, Ugh, we don't know what to say about it. We're just kind of like, yeah, let's, let's just kind of admit that's not in the Bible. And so, no, let's think about it. And Joshua Butler points us a few helpful directions forward to see the spirit of the whole Old Testament. And here's one way to think about it. When you think about Israel, the nation of Israel, being commanded to do what we would call holy war and in, in God commanding them to do certain acts of violence or things like that, a lot of times I think we realize that there's this sense of Israel being this powerhouse, this strong military force, and they're just taking people over and wiping them out left and right, and it's just this terrible, barbaric Old Testament scene of you know, oh, that's what I can't stand about the Bible. But that, that, friends, does not do justice with the story. The story of the Bible is that the other nations are the mean, big, bad military powerhouses. That Israel is the fewest and the weakest, had a later start than the other nations. They don't have a military, and they are getting victory in the least weakest ways. So it's, it's really a story of God arising on behalf of weak people, 
and conquering over the tyranny of evil and strong people. So, give you some examples. The nation of Canaan had horses and chariots. The Philistines had a, a giant named Goliath, if you've heard that story before. In comparison, Israel is like a kindergartner taking on the high school senior and trying to beat them up with a wiffle ball bat. That's a better way to read the Old Testament stories of holy war. Canaan had heavily fortified defense systems, fortresses, military outposts, high walls, guards. Israel had a small wooden box with the invisible presence of God, and that was their protection. Imagine going into a holy war. You have no fortified outposts. You have no high walls. You have a wooden box. How are we going to win this battle? We've got the box. Canaan had experienced generals who had practiced for centuries strategies and improved their military advances. For example, do you remember when it says that the spies went into the land? And they were scared because the Canaanites were huge. They were giants. They were feasting on a land filled with milk and honey for decades. They've had experience of growing and building their military might and strength. But Israel were former slaves being cruelly beaten by the Egyptians, barely fought and did not do so well against just a bunch of snakes in the wilderness. Israel lived off of bread falling from heaven and water gushing out of rocks. That's the people that they had versus the Canaanites on land flowing with milk and honey. And they had giants. And when the Israelites see them, they're like, ah, nope. So Israel coming into the land of Canaan would be like ants trying to run through the feet of elephants. That's more the picture of the Old Testament story. Canaan has metal swords and armor, but Israel has no armor, no high-tech weapons. They have sticks and stones and the clothes on their back. It's like trying to go to Fort Knox and you have a water pistol. Do you get the idea? You start reading the Old Testament and it gives you a much different picture of this military might and, oh, God commands the nation to just come in and slaughter everybody. They're this strong, oppressive. No, they're the weak. They're the fewest. And in fact, that's why God chose them in particular because they were the weakest and the fewest. It tells you that there's a greater story of how God's working in the world. And so the why there's this common refrain in Psalm 20, some trust in chariots, some trust in horses, but we will trust in the name of the Lord our God. You see, that's the difference. They are not the New England Patriots playing the Cleveland Browns, the greatest NFL team against the, the weakest, worst team. No, no, Canaan is like Israel. They're in two different leagues. It's like the New England Patriots playing the Pee Wee Little Kids Elementary School team. This is the difference. This is the difference I don't think that's often grasped. And this is part of the reason why we don't understand that when Jesus says, I've come to fulfill the Old Testament, he is not embarrassed or ashamed about the direction that the Old Testament is pointing, not only in specific laws, but even in the whole story of how God worked with his people. Do you all know the phrase, or have you ever heard the phrase, be still and know that I am God? I've heard that a lot. I've seen it on very sweet-looking frames and pictures in people's homes. But did you know that the first time that phrase appears, and the reason why it's repeated so many times throughout the Old Testament, is not to encourage you to go into a quiet room 
and have silent prayer, although that could be a great thing for all of us to do. The point is to understand that that phrase comes from the words of Moses right before they're about to get annihilated from the Egyptian chariots as they're stuck in between the Red Sea in front of them, nowhere to go, nowhere to go backwards because you've got this army coming in on you. And Moses tells them, do not be afraid, be still, and watch the Lord God rescue you today. The Egyptians you see today will never be seen again. Be still and know that I am God. This is the theme throughout the Old Testament. Trust for God to rise up on your behalf, on the behalf of the weak, and he will be your strength. Be still and know that I am God is not a picture of us locked up in our room, but is a picture of chaos and war and being surrounded by such insurmountable problems, either in your individual life or the whole global world. And you say, oh my, what are we going to do? And we, we, in our stillness, in our weakness, we trust for the God who will provide and deliver. It's a picture of a small, weak child on a playground being picked on by 15 giant bullies. And dad steps in and says, step back, son. I'm going to take care of this for you. Do you realize how backwards it is, all of the language and rhetoric throughout the history of the church, the bad history of the church, the crusades, the holy wars that have been done using texts like these to say we should fight for God on behalf of God? The motto of terrorists today and Christians who have killed says we will fight for God. But the motto of the Old Testament, the story that's pointing us forward, that Jesus ultimately fulfills and culminates in his life, is God will fight for us. And if he does not, we have no chance of victory. So to sum all this up, Joshua Butler in his book gives you 10 tips for how to fight a holy war if you would like to follow the Old Testament story to its literal points. You guys want to fight a holy war? Step one, throw away all of your armor. Step two, burn all tactical training and military books. Step three, find the cheapest, most ineffective weapons. Think storming the beaches of Normandy with a trumpet, for example. Step four, visit a drug rehab center and find some military leaders to lead your army because they're going to have all kinds of mental issues. Step five, hire a reporter that will track all of your flaws and failures and remind you of them. Step six, boast to your enemies about how backward your civilization is and how weak you are. Step seven, go find the biggest, baddest superpower that you will be certain will beat you up. Step eight, now pick a fight with them. Step nine, now go walk into the middle of the battlefield. Step 10, pray and hope God shows up because you have no chance. Hopefully that sums up what I'm trying to say. The Old Testament laws, like eye for an eye, are limiting violence. The Old Testament story, even the Joshua conquest, is not about this conquering kingdom that's trying to come and wipe people out with violence. He tells them to go around Jericho with trumpets and blast their trumpets and shout. Could there be any more insane war story than that? And this is the beginning of how God shows weakness will win. We win with weakness. We have a good God. He's worthy of your trust. And Jesus is fulfilling that story. And we'll see that by what he teaches here and by what he does. So let's move to those two points now. Secondly, 
If the Old Testament story is not a story that's just wrapped up with a God who's so bloodthirsty and angry and wants to kill and destroy everybody except those that he loves, but rather is a God of love and grace and wants to limit and restrain violence, not only with his laws, but with the way he goes about the story, then what does Jesus tell us here? Let's look at it again. You've heard it said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. And here we need to pause because he's going to illustrate what he means. But before we get to that, we need to realize that there's a bit of a translation problem. This comes back from the original first English translations where they translated this, resist the one who is evil. It's not like the, wrong, the word is the wrong word. The word is fine. The problem is when you read that, you're probably not getting the right idea. This word, resist the one who is evil, makes it sound like you should just lie down and let people beat you up. Somebody does something evil to you, well, don't fight back. Just let people beat you. It's okay. Jesus wins with weakness and suffering. That doesn't tell us the whole story. The word resist here is used in military or legal context. The best translation is probably do not take revenge on somebody who wrongs you or do not use violence to resist evil. That's the, that's the pregnant weightiness of this word, resist. It has a sense of military fighting back. You have to remember, when Jesus is saying this, there is this thing called the Roman government that's oppressing people, taxing them 80 to 90%. Could you imagine the government taxing you 80% of your income? Then what you do have left, they often come in and steal it and seize it and take people to do whatever they want. They're just completely oppressing you constantly. So when Jesus in the next section talks about loving your enemies, they know who their enemies are. This is not like, well, I've got this bad coworker and boss that treats me. Like, think enemies. Think people that you just can't stand and you would have a hard time resisting the temptation to want to hit back because they have hit you again and again. And Jesus says, do not respond with violence to resist evil. And what I think he does in his next series of illustrations, these four suggestions for how this looks, and this is not an exhaustive list, it's him illustrating. Here's, here's where I'm pointing you to, and this is ultimately what I think the Old Testament was pointing us to, was not to increase the violence and retaliation, but limit it. If anything, Jesus is going to say, no, no, I'll take it one step further. We shouldn't just limit retaliation. We should reverse the whole system and cycle of evil. So first, Jesus gives the illustration of striking someone on the cheek. So let's read that first. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Now, first thing to understand is why does it matter that Jesus says slaps you, strikes you on the right cheek? What's the dominant hand that most people use? Your right hand. If I'm going to slap somebody on the right cheek and they're facing me, then I have to come from this way. So it's more than likely being referred to what? A backhand slap. If I backhand slap anybody, even today, there's not just a sense of violence being done, but shame, kind of disrespect, right? Well, times that by 10, remember you're living in an honor-shame society that Jesus is talking about, that the right hand is definitely the dominant hand, and you would have been seen as a weirdo if you were a left-handed person. No offense to you left-handers. But that's just the world they lived in. So the fact that he says right 
cheek shows that either it's a left-handed slap, which is kind of like a disrespected slap, or it's a backhanded slap. Either way, the point is that it's not just violence, it's shame. And I want you to pick up on that point. It's not just an act of violence, it is also the shame, the insult. It implies that you're an inferior. It's treating you like a slave or a child. You are less than me. It's not just what was being done, but what's being spoken of as it's being done. And Jesus says that if you were to respond with hitting them back, then you're just increasing the violence. The cycle will continue. It'll be one smack, then another, then another, and then it goes on. Instead, offer the other cheek, now as an equal, not as an inferior. So in this moment, they're treating you like a slave, like an inferior, as a disrespected person. You regain your dignity, and you look at them, and instead of treating them the way that they just treated you, you turn the other cheek with the idea here, this is not like pragmatic that this works 100% of the time or anything, and this is part of why it's like this is not instructions for how to deal with an abusive husband or something. But what's the principle behind here? If somebody looks at you in the face and they don't hit you back, and they turn the other cheek, they're saying, listen, you're not above me. This is not passive and passivism per se. This is aggressive advancing the kingdom of God in a third way. You could either fight back, you could do nothing. Jesus is giving you a third alternative where he says, no, no, I want you to look at them in the face, turn the other cheek. Say, just hit me again. It's fine. Do you realize what that's saying? You're treating me like this? It's saying, no, I'll treat you like this back. That's the first illustration. The second one is about being sued. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, so think your undershirt. Think like the normal shirt that you wear, a blouse for a lady. The shirt that I'm wearing now, okay? That's, that's what he's referring to. Somebody wants to take your tunic, your undershirt. Well, okay, if they want to sue you for that, then let him have your cloak as well. Now, your cloak would have been like your coat. Think like a big trench coat. Think, remember, Middle Eastern clothing. You'd had two pieces of garment. One would have been your underclothing, and one would have been your overclothing. And they're trying to take your undershirt from you. And Jesus says, if they're asking for your bike, then give them your car. Do you see the spirit of what Jesus is saying here? If somebody is poor, and imagine these people that Jesus is talking to, we already know from the context of chapter 4, right before the Sermon on the Mount starts, these are sick people. They're people who are, had all kinds of disease. That's the crowd that Jesus is talking to. It's not about the rich. These are the people that are probably have debts and all kinds of problems in their lives going on. And he says, listen, if the rich want to exploit you and make you feel like you're less and they want to take everything they can from you, you just give everything back. And so if you gave, you have two pieces of clothes, and they want your undershirt, and you give your cloak, can you do the math? You have no clothes left. So, so essentially, I don't think Jesus is, is condoning or asking, hey, let's encourage people to be naked and walk around naked. That's, that's, that's again, a bad way to read this. The, the idea, though, is that you're saying, let me show you what you're really doing, and let me tell you, hey, I'll, I'll go that step further. You're shaming me? You rich and powerful people want to sue me for every last penny? 
and just squish on the, on the poor, we're more than happy to just say, that's fine. And so you are treating them as equals and you're trying to stop the cycle of systemic and oppressive violence being done in the name of suing people and uh, rich oppressing the poor. The third example, the extra mile, as it's been in our everyday language, um, as an idiom and an expression, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. And this is not like a Jesus being, you know, a cool teacher of his day and think, oh, let me think of a cool proverb. This is a literal example that would have happened a lot. The Romans had the legal right to force civilians to carry their equipment for up to one mile. So imagine you're a Roman soldier and you've got like all this different uh, equipment and you're like, "Ah, I'm tired of carrying this. I'm going to make this person carry it. Well, they were very strict. Like it could only be one mile. And then they, by law, would have to carry that equipment for that Roman soldier. If some of you remember uh, from reading your Bible or watching the stories of Jesus going to his death, do you remember when Jesus is carrying his cross? And then all of a sudden he can't carry it anymore because he's just completely exhausted and beat up. And so they, they get this guy out of the crowd and they say, no, you have to carry it now. Get that picture in your mind. Like that's, that's a good illustration of what Jesus is talking about here. And it'll be relevant for you thinking about how Jesus conquers evil as well. But what he says is after that mile's done, so you carry the pack, you carry the equipment, and they, they're not allowed to force you to carry it anymore. That would be like, you know, um, against the Roman law, and you could get in big-time trouble from the higher-ups. So you turn the tables on them. You don't fight back. You don't do it begrudgingly. <sighs> All right, done my mile. Instead, now there's two, two options here. We're used to the phrase, go the extra mile, which means don't just do the one mile, do two miles. But some have suggested that the language here is actually, don't just do one mile, do two more miles. Either way, I think you get the idea, don't you? Your dignity and your being looked on as this person that they could pray and, and, and press down in shame as this, this weaker person At the end of that first mile, you're now, well, I'm free. I'm free. And in that freedom, you're going to use that freedom to say, hey, I'm more than happy to carry this an extra mile or two. Where are you guys going? And what happens if word starts spreading throughout the Roman government and Roman officers? Did you hear what happened to so-and-so? He made this dude carry it a mile. And then the next time they got to that mile, he carried it for two more miles. It's, it's just this makes you think differently. It's, it's not being passive like, whatever, I'll just do it and suffer. It's, it's not a fight back, well, I'm going to pull out my sword and kill you Roman government soldiers because you're oppressing me and I don't like the way you're making me shamed. No, it, it is an aggressive move. It, it is not sitting back. It is moving the kingdom forward by ending this cycle of shame. And I think this last one kind of sums it all up. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one from whom would ask to borrow from you. This is interest-free loans and just giving to everyone who asks. What's Jesus saying? That the heart that has a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees does not do the bare minimum. It is, it is overflowing with generosity and love and care for other people around them. And that's certainly what's needed to do those other three illustrations, is it not? 
How are you going to be that kind of person that is willing to go not just one mile, but two more miles? How are you going to be the kind of person that turns the other cheek? That kind of character is what Jesus is talking about when he says in verse 20, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Not the bare minimum of looking at, all right, let me just do this and get through it. But let me purposefully advance the message of love and grace and suffering and and the willingness to put down my life for the sake of others. This is why I had you uh, earlier in the service listen to Romans chapter 12 being read. Paul seems is is listening to Jesus as he gives these instructions in Romans 12. Don't they sound very similar to this section in the Sermon on the Mount? In Romans 12, you would have heard earlier, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them, Live in harmony with anyone. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own sight. Do not repay evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. And if it's possible, so far as it depends upon you, live peaceably with all. Never avenge yourselves, beloved. Vengeance is mine and I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Do you see it's not passive? It's aggressive. Do good in the face of evil to end and reverse the process of evil. And it seems like Paul's summary statement here is a great helpful way to understand what Jesus is trying to say. So read Romans 12 with Matthew chapter 5 together, and I think you'll hopefully get the principle, the direction that Jesus is pointing us to. And as Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, is well known for his nonviolent response to the evil and the systemic racism here in our country, regardless of what you all think about his theological views, I don't necessarily think he's like the greatest theologian who understands the Bible, but his life, his example, is certainly worthy of us to honor and be remembering as a, as a nation, collectively, but even as Christians. Did you know that Martin Luther King Jr. was a a pastor? He was preaching sermons. His famous I Have a Dream speech in part is rooted out of Amos chapter 5 and about justice rolling like the mighty rivers. That's that's him preaching. And so he's, he's well known for all kinds of great sayings and sermons on this topic. And one of his sayings was, The world expects people to respond to violence with violence. They know how to respond to this. They know what to do with it. But what they don't know what to do with is when people respond to violence with nonviolence. And so on one occasion, while Dr. King was delivering a speech, this is not, for me, a well-known story, but there was a member of the American Nazi party who walked up on stage and struck him in the face. King was knocked back. He regained his composure. He turned the other cheek, and he was struck again. Until the crowd intervened, hauled off this Nazi, and took him to another room. Shortly after this, Dr. King visited this Nazi, reassured him he would not do him any harm. And he said he would not press charges. And he says, I want you to know that you're forgiven. He took a bag of ice, returned to the stage where he was giving his speech. And Martin Luther King Jr. stood up. And everyone who heard his story, and anyone who hears the story now knows, I wonder who won that fight, the Nazi or Martin Luther King Jr.? 
Do you see how this illustrates, at least in part, what it looks like to take Jesus' words and apply them at times as an aggressive message that is not being just passive on the one hand and just saying, yeah, just beat me up, but rather, do you notice how he goes to the man and he says, listen, you are forgiven, and I'm going to kill you with kindness. I'm going to win with my weakness. And I'm going to allow God and his spirit to fight that battle for me instead of fighting back and say, vengeance is mine. And so I do think that there's a lot that we can learn from his life, Martin Luther King Jr., that is. He helps us see that the way to reverse evil is to take the words of Jesus very seriously. So let's finally consider this last point. We've seen how the Old Testament is pointing us to a direction of limiting the evil and retaliation. It's telling us a story about a God who sides with the weak, and through the weakness of the world, he wins a battle and a victory over the forces of evil in the world. So when we turn to the actual message of the gospel of Jesus, we see that Jesus conquers evil through weakness by limiting his evil by fighting back with violence, with nonviolence, in an aggressive manner that has left the whole world different ever since. Did you know that in the book of Revelation, many Christians who think that we should be really aggressive and fight says, well, there's a lot of violence in the book of Revelation. There's all kinds of blood and and battles going on. But in fact, the book of Revelation begins with this phrase again and again. It's, to the one who conquers, I will give the kingdom of life. Or to the one who conquers, you will have the right to eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil and have the tree of eternal life. Do you realize that when Jesus uses that phrase, he's talking to this early church that's persecuted and it's weak, and he uses this phrase, conquer, and it's the word that we get Nike from, Nikeo, and it's talking about being conquered, and it's the way you would think about it, like a military conquering. But as you read the book of Revelation and you get to the very end, there is a man riding on a horse, a white horse, and he's got a double-edged sword coming out of his mouth, and he's wearing white robes, and there's blood all over them. Now, there's two ways to read that. Either Jesus just slaughtered a bunch of people with his sword, or maybe he was the slaughtered one who's now standing alive. And the best way, I think, to read it is the second way, that Jesus conquered evil, and to those who will conquer, it will be through your suffering and not through your violence. Jesus conquered, as you get to Revelation chapter 5, by being the lion, the roaring mighty lion. How is he going to conquer over everyone? By being the lamb who is also slain. The book of Revelation does not give a portrait and a picture of just this bloodthirsty God. It gives of a bloodthirsty world and God taking on the evil himself and doing everything that we just read about in the illustrations that Jesus gives in the Sermon on the Mount. He is the quintessential, perfect example of somebody who does not just preach his message, but walks the walk and lives it out. He is the lion who becomes a lamb. He is the conqueror who is conquered. He is the one who kills with kindness and defeats by dying. Jesus did not just give good advice for here's how to live differently as a human in the world. Oh, he does do that. But he also gives us good news in the gospel. And everything that he says that we should do, he has already done for us on our behalf and won the decisive and ultimate battle against evil when he died on a cross. 
Do you remember when Jesus was mocked and shamed and treated like he was inferior? What did he do? Did he yell back? Did he call names back? How about when he was struck across the face and punched and put a crown of thorns on his head? Did he turn the other cheek or did he use violence to win that battle that day? When they challenged him, when they tried to trick him and put him into some sort of difficult situation and ask loaded questions, he responded with what are sometimes funny, odd stories and parables. And they'd be like, what? And they didn't know how to respond. He would make them think differently. He would give them a different option instead of having a a verbal argument. He would end it by taking a different route. When they put the worst piece of Roman equipment on his back, he carried it not just a mile, he went the extra mile and carried it up as far as he could until eventually they nailed him to that cross. And when he hung on that cross, as they continued to mock him, as they took his cloak and his tunic and he hung naked from the cross, he said, Father, forgive them. He's not passive, he's winning. He's advancing the kingdom. He's not just getting beat. He is shaming them. His shame becomes now their shame. It's the picture and blueprint, not just of the way we should live in the Sermon on the Mount. It is the picture and blueprint of the life and the death of Jesus that becomes the decisive battle over all evil in human history as Jesus takes on Satan himself and death And as Colossians 2 says, disarms it, defeats it as he's nailed to the cross. Isn't it great that Jesus never asks you to do anything that he hasn't already done? Isn't it great that because of this good news, there already is victory over evil and that there's a power and there's a force called the Holy Spirit. That as Jesus dies, as he's buried, he stays three days in the tomb, he rises again, he ascends to heaven and pours out his spirit, that that spirit now can live inside of you. And you do have the opportunity to live in the same way that Jesus calls us to. Perfectly? Not at all. But this mature man lived the same way that we should have, in the same way we should. So let's look to Jesus. Let's consider Jesus. Let's see his example. Let's apply his teaching to our life. And let's be comforted this morning that evil has been defeated. Let's pray together.